Well, good morning. Out of interest, are there anybody here who wasn't here last night? There's a few of you. Okay, good. Well, good to meet you this morning. And uh, just by way of uh, further personal comment, I mentioned last night that I have two sons-in-law. Uh, one is from Iran, and uh, he and my daughter are missionaries in South Africa. My other son-in-law is from Kazakhstan. And uh, we heard a bit from Kazakhstan from Johanna this morning, those who are there for the breakfast and the connections you have there. He was converted at the university in Almaty through a campus crusade for Christ worker. And then he migrated to Toronto when he was about 20, 21. And uh, he and my daughter are also in full-time ministry. They are involved in a ministry called Move In, which is mainly young people moving into some of the tough, rough areas of the city of Toronto. And uh, refugees and uh, people who've fallen by the wayside in some way. And uh, the movement is getting young people to move into these tough areas and to be a presence there. The only commitment they make is that they spend every Tuesday night praying for that community. So if your you know, grandmother's broken her leg, don't bring that to this prayer meeting. We're not going to pray for granny's broken leg. We're going to just pray for the community. And they focus on it, and they pray right through the evening. That's the only commitment. And out of that flows everything else that flows in their ministries, their connections with people. And uh, there are over 200 young people now that have moved in to various parts of Toronto. Students going to university, but this is where they make their base, their ministry, and uh, folks who are working but can make their, their base there. And uh, uh, they're already producing missionaries. They've sent several out already to some of the toughest areas of the world. That's their objective. So it's really a missionary training organization, but designed to, 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 to reach folks uh, there in those tough areas of Toronto initially. And interesting, the biggest struggle with uh, uh, getting uh, young people involved has not been the young people themselves, but the Christian parents who don't want their kids to go and live in the kind of communities where they're living. Uh, because they want them to become contaminated, I guess, and uh, some of it is, is rough and tough. My daughter, before she married, um, was in an area and she befriended a prostitute used to come and stay in her little apartment. There were two of them in the apartment. And uh, Laura Adwell would sleep on the floor and let this girl sleep in her bed. And uh, she gave us some clothing. And she said, looking from her window one day, she saw this girl dressed in her clothing, Laura's clothing, um, selling herself on the street. And uh, that's the kind of costly ministry that really does produce fruit. I'm a great believer where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that people are much more receptive when the world has fallen apart for them. So that's just a bit about uh, the connection here with Kazakhstan that was mentioned earlier this morning. And uh, I have another son. I, well, I have two daughters and a son, and my son is actually in Mali in West Africa. He's a pilot. He's flying there for the United Nations, mainly carrying 
troops around or VIPs or when necessary humanitarian aid and uh, he's having his adventures there in that part of West Africa as well. So uh, let me turn you back to Matthew chapter 9. We began to look at this a little bit last night. Matthew chapter 9, last night I read the key verse, which was verse 36, where it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The overall theme of this conference is grace through us into the world. And I said last night, I like to personalize that. Not grace is some detached thing, but Christ through us, which is in keeping with what uh, Paul wrote about in Romans. I'll not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And looking at this instance here, I said last night, I'm going to pick out several words. I was going to pick out two last night, but we only had time for one. The first word being, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on, on them, the word being vision. And we talked about seeing people as they really are and uh, our eyes being open to them. But the second key word is the word compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, verse 36, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Motivation in mission is not obedience. We are given a task. We have been sent into all the world. But if the only reason we respond is obedience, we will quit very easily. The motivation for mission is love. It's compassion. You see, obedience may drive us, but compassion draws us to people. Obedience may push us along with a sense of obligation, what am I supposed to be doing, but compassion pulls us along and draws us to people. And we don't have compassion just by praying about it. Oh God, give me love for these people. That isn't where you get your compassion from. You're never told to pray for love in Scripture. Nobody ever prayed for love. They just opened their eyes and looked at people. As Jesus does here, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Not when he went to the prayer meeting, he had compassion, but when he saw people as they really are. And it's opening our eyes and seeing people that draws us in love. My wife often says to me, when I go to preach, she'll say, don't forget to love the people. Don't just preach to them. Don't forget to love the people. And you see, vision without compassion will lead to disillusionment. You know, many of our churches have uh, meetings and working groups and interest groups that sit down to discuss the necessity of what we're doing as a church, what is our vision, what is our mission, what are the values we're going to accomplish these things by, and we produce our documents, and we derive our strategies, and we have church meetings to present these to our people, but in so many cases, they go nowhere at all because that is not how you reach people. 
the noblest vision, the clever, most clever devised strategy in itself won't bring people to Christ. It is energized love and compassion that will connect us with people. And we never serve God well just on the grounds of obedience. We may start off that way, but we'll quit very soon. We'll get tired. We'll become aware of all the overwhelming odds that are around us that seem to make life difficult. And that is true, uh, that life is difficult and ministry is difficult. But if we are motivated only by obedience, we will hit those walls very quickly. If we're motivated by love, we'll hit those walls and we'll find a way through them because it's the people the other side that is our compassion and our concern. And I, I, that speaks to my own heart because I know what it's like to be busy. I know what it's like to be caught up in important things and to say, okay, I've had enough rather than being driven and drawn along by the sense of, uh, of love. I was speaking some years ago at the New England Association of Evangelicals who organized an annual pastor's conference, the six New England states in the Northeast. And uh, the conference was held in Boston, in Massachusetts, about 3,000 pastors all came together for three or four days. There was a whole team of speakers, and I was one of them. But one of the other speakers there was a man called Juan Carlos Ortiz. Anybody know that name, Juan Carlos Ortiz? He wrote one or two books that circulated for a while. He's known to some, maybe not so widely known. Juan Carlos Ortiz is from Buenos Aires in Argentina. And... Uh, He's a brother-in-law of Luis Palau. Probably you know Luis Palau. Anybody know Luis Palau? They both married sisters. And um, Juan Carlos Ortiz was pastoring a church in Buenos Aires that was a very fast-growing church. In fact, he told us it had the reputation of being the fastest-growing church in Buenos Aires. And one Sunday, he prepared a message to preach on the text love one another. That was to be his sermon. He said, I prepared it in some detail. I'd looked up the different Greek words for love. I was going to explain each of these words, and etc. But he said, during the first part of the service, during the time of worship, I began to have a feeling that I shouldn't preach my message. He said, it was a strange feeling, but it was a strong feeling. I shouldn't preach my message. So he said, when the worship leader said, now our brother Juan Carlos Ortiz is going to bring us his message, he said, I went up to the pulpit and I said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. Then he turned around, went back to his seat, and he sat down. And he sat down a couple of minutes, which is a very long time when you don't know what is happening. The worship leader said, are we supposed to have another song? He just sat there. Then he got up after about two minutes, came back to the pulpit and said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. And went back and sat down again. He said his wife was sitting out there and she thought, he's flipped. <laughs> I knew that would come one day. People were a little embarrassed in the silence and the uncertainty. 
He got back up again and he said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. I don't know what it was the third time or the fourth time. He went and sat down. He said, somebody over here in one end of the building turned to somebody next to her and said, is there any way I can love you? And somebody else turned to somebody else and said, is there something I can do for you? And before long, the whole church was alive with people talking in conversation. He said, we had 28 unemployed people in the church that morning. Every one of them went home with a job. He talked about other statistics, and I was writing so fast, I didn't get them all down. <laughs> the unmarried single mothers who had children who were overwhelmed with the responsibility and the weight of it, went home with people undertaking to support her in her family. He said, if I'd preached that message that morning, their folks at the end would have said, thank you, brother, that was a great message. I really enjoyed that. I like the Greek words that you'd said about them and the difference. That's very interesting. But he said, they would have all said that was a nice message, but 28 unemployed people would have gone home unemployed. And he said, to be utterly frank, most people couldn't have cared less. So he said, the next Sunday morning, I got up and I said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the same as last week. Love one another. And he went and sat down. And he said, somebody turned to somebody else and said, who can I love this week? And again, he said, people began to move around. And, uh, and he said, all kinds of needs were being met. He said, but it caused uproar in the church. It split the church. There are people who came to me and said, we don't employ you to stand up and say, love one another. Anybody can do that. We employ you to teach us in the word of God. But he said, for three months, I had no liberty. But to just say, my text this morning is love one another. Let's do it. They'd grown to about 1,000 people. There'd been 300 when he went there. He said, we lost 300 people in those three months who wanted somewhere where they could be taught, and didn't have to do anything, <laughs> wasn't expected to work out in their lives. He said, after three months, I got up and I said, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given me a new text this morning. And they broke out in applause. <laughs> he said, my text this morning is love your neighbor as yourself. He said, I stood there, I looked around. And I turned around, took my Bible, went and sat down again. He said, there was silence for a moment. And then somebody got up and walked out through the door. Somebody else got up, walked out. Before long, they'd all gone to the parking lot. Within 10 minutes, the parking lot was empty. People had gone back to their homes. People had walked back to their homes. They'd parked their cars. They'd gone next door to their neighbor and said, is there anything I can do for you? He said, it was about time to do it. It was in December. He said, my wife and I and our two daughters said, we'd all got stuff to give each other for Christmas. We went back to our home. We went down the street. We found incredible need. We had no idea existed. We took our unopened Christmas presents and we gave them all away people who we knew had need. He said, you know the interesting thing that happened? He said, people began to call the church and said, is that the church that helped? Is that the, are you the people that help people? Yeah, sure, we'd love to help you. He said, 
we had tried all the kind of evangelistic strategies you could think of. We'd grown, he said, mostly because Christians came from other churches because they felt there was something going on here. That's why we'd grown, but we weren't really reaching folks who were outside of Christ. He said, we tried the evangelism explosion, but he said nothing exploded. I'm just quoting what he said. <laughs> now he said, we had to employ people to answer the telephones. People saying, I've got a problem. Are you the church that helps people? Somebody call. My mother's dying. Would somebody come and help me? My son's in prison. Could you help me do something about this? My daughter's on drugs. Is there anybody at your place who could help us with this? He said, and suddenly everybody, uh, the, the church began to grow in a, in, in a way it hadn't before, not just in breadth, but in depth. I used to be quite pleased that we'd grown from 300 to 1,000, and we were known as the fastest-growing church in Buenos Aires, he said. And I was quite pleased with that until one day I was driving past the cemetery, and I noticed that it was growing as well. And he said it wasn't growth in substance. It was just growth in numbers. And he said, in that period of time, completely revolutionized our church. I'm just telling you what he said. I'm telling you what he did. I think that's a divine moment. Uh, I wouldn't try that in Toronto because it would have to be the right moment, the right occasion, the right divine appointment. But you know, they say of the early church, see how these Christians love one another. Y you've heard that. It's not in the Bible. That's, uh, they said the early church, they would say that. See how these Christians love one another. Is that a good thing, I wonder? See how these Christians love one another. I think something far more true to the spirit of Jesus Christ would be if the people said, see how these Christians love us. See, loving one another is not particularly impressive if you're in the same movement, the same club down the road. In the bars, they'll love one another. That's where they go. They go there for the fellowship. Across in the football team, they will love one another because they're there working together. It's not impressive. The Christians love one another. What is impressive, what touches the world, is the Christians love us. And Jesus is saying, looking out at the opportunities and what this means for Christ through us into the world is that you see the crowd, you have vision, you see the crowd, and out of that he had compassion, love. And you know, that love is going to be costly. It is only that love that keeps us going when things get tough, and they do get tough, I so easily give up on people because it gets costly and it becomes, you get weary and uh, you think, is there any real progress being made here? But if you love them, you'll stick with it, not just as a scalp to be collected, but as somebody, a human being to invest your life in. And you know, Jesus said it was going to be costly because... Matthew 10, which continues from there in Matthew 9, the same event when he had uh, uh, talked to them 
in the way I've just been reading to you, saw the crowds, had compassion. He then sent his disciples out. And for the first time, he gave them authority and power. And he said to them, as you go, you preach this message. This is Matthew 10, verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those of leprosy, drive out demons, etc. And they thought, this is fantastic. Up until now, it's Jesus who's had the power. It's Jesus who has raised the dead and healed the sick and cleansed the demons. We've simply been with him. We've been on the sidelines. We've, we've watched him. We've seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And our job was to distribute it. And our job was to pick up all the pieces that were left at the end. And that was fantastic. But now he's saying he's giving this power to us. I'm sure they were incredibly excited. Until verse 16. When he said to them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. What happens when sheep and wolves meet? It's very obvious, isn't it? The wolves all roll on their backs, the sheep tickle their tummies, and the wolves learn to say nice sheepy things like, hallelujah, <laughs> or amen. <laughs> no, the sheep say, help. <laughs> and Jesus said, listen, you're not the wolf. You're not the dominant one. You're the vulnerable one. You're the sheep, and you're going amongst wolves. That means you are going to get into trouble. And so unless you're motivated by this compassion, by this love, you'll have a million reasons to quit. Of the 12 disciples he was speaking to here, One of them committed suicide. The most reliable evidence we have is that only one of them died as an old man in his bed. The others were all martyred at some point along the way. The other 10, the one who died as an old man was John. And John spent years imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. They all faced opposition. They all faced persecution. They all faced trouble. And Jesus told them it would be that. This is not an easy ride. This is costly. And if we're going to see the gospel taken into the world with power and with authority and with fruitfulness, it is going to be costly to do that. I was in Liberia in West Africa on one occasion to speak to a conference of missionaries who worked there with SIM. And they brought their missionary. They had a big base in Liberia, a big hospital, radio station, and so on. And they brought others from nearby countries for this conference. And uh, there are a lot of Christians in Liberia. Liberia was one of the only two countries in Africa not to have been colonized. The other was Ethiopia. And Liberia was uh, American slaves returning to Africa. And uh, Liberia, the name means liberty. They've been freed. And uh, they named the capital city Monrovia after President Monroe, who had been instrumental in them being able to be sent back to uh, West Africa. 
and uh, being back there in a new environment, a new context, as often is true, you're open to new thinking, and, and many started to come to Christ, and there's a strong Christian church in Liberia, it's a very troubled country now, but it's a strong Christian church there, and one day, uh, one of the missionaries said to me, do you know why the church in Liberia has been strong for so long? I said, no, I don't. I said, would you tell me? And he said, no, I won't tell you. I'll show you. I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, after lunch today, I'll take and show you why the church is strong here. So after lunch, we got into his car. We drove down into the center of Monrovia. And we drove down a little road, and there was an old colonial-looking type of church that had been there for many, many years, stone building. We parked outside, went in. There was a cemetery all around the church. Went around the side of the church, went over to a certain area of the cemetery, and he said, look at that gravestone there. And it was a Western name on the gravestone, not a Liberian name. He said, look at the one next to it. And it was the same family name. First was male, this was female. Look at this one here. And this one here, and there's about five graves all the same family name, father, mother, three kids. He said, you see how far apart they were when they died? It was within two or three months when they died. He said, these were some of the first missionaries who came here. And they came here without resistance to local diseases. They hadn't the immunity. And they came knowing this was true. And they died here within a short while of arriving. He said, now come over here. Went to another part. He said, look at that name there. Same thing. Six kids this time. Whole family buried. He said, come over here. Once and, and there were a number of families. He said, you know, some of these missionaries, when they came to Liberia, brought their coffins with them. They used them as trunks to carry their goods, but they knew it's unlikely they would ever go back. But they were willing to come to sow the seeds of what is now the church in Liberia. I was so challenged by that. So challenged. I will quit over nothing. And yet, here are these people who went knowing they're giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. You know, Paul gave his testimony in 2 Corinthians 11 in this regard when there were some false apostles came into Corinth and they said Paul was not a real apostle because there were a number of things they said that didn't fit the criteria they said a real man of God would have, including that Paul was not set free from all his difficulties and problems and that Paul was not prosperous and so on and they said this is evidence that God's blessing isn't on him and so Paul has to defend himself against these pseudo apostles and he says in segment 11 and verse 23 he says are they servants of Christ that's these pseudo apostles are they servants of Christ I'm out of my mind to talk like this he's a bit embarrassed in saying this but I am more and here's his evidence I've worked much harder I've been in prison more frequently I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again 
and again. In other words, just to let you know that I'm a genuine apostle, how many times have they been in prison? Well, I've been in prison more. How many times have they been flogged? Well, I've been flogged more severely. How many times have they been exposed to death? I've been exposed to death again and again. This, by the way, is evidence that he's a real apostle. Then he goes on to get some details in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 lashes for those whose arithmetic isn't very good. Five times, and by the way, the lashings were with cords into which were tied pieces of bone that would uh, uh, break the skin and wrench out chunks of flesh that when a person had been beaten with 39 lashes, he was hardly recognizable, is what they would say, because his body was like a plowed field. Paul says, I've had that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. That isn't, that's just beaten with sticks. Once I was stoned. We know where that happened. That happened in Lystra in Acts 14. And they left him for dead outside the city of Lystra. And he was not dead. He was in some deep coma. And he came around, got up. And I think it's amazing. It says, and he went back into the city. <laughs> I would have gone the opposite direction. Probably went back into the city. Stood up in the town square and said, ladies and gentlemen, Excuse the way I look at the moment, I'm a bit black and blue, but I was telling you something very important earlier when I was rudely interrupted. Let me finish. <laughs> then he says, uh, three times I was shipwrecked, and that doesn't include the times you know about in the book of Acts, because this is written before that. It looks as though most times Paul went on a boat, it sank. <laughs> I mean, why didn't God keep him afloat? If I was one of Paul's colleagues, I'd say, Paul, which boat are you going on? This one? Okay, I'll come on the next one. I'll look out for you. Glad he wasn't alive in the days of aviation. That would have been very dangerous. But he says, my boat sank. Well, we might say, why in the world didn't God keep his boat afloat? And the answer is, I don't know. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to keep everything good for us. He's not promised to do that. Then he says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. So not even the courtesy of sinking by hitting a rock near the coast. He's out in the open sea. Then he said, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I think he was in danger. <laughs> I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. By the way, this is the man who said, my God will supply all your needs. But there have been days, he says, I've had no food. I've been cold and naked. There's even been days when I've had no clothes on my back. He doesn't tell us where that arose, how he got to the stage of being cold and naked. Maybe he was in the bathtub on the boat one day when the boat sank and he swam away with nothing. I don't know. You know, he arrived in Malta from a shipwreck, from a shipwreck and, and, and maybe... I can just imagine the few believers in Malta saying, we understand the Apostle Paul somewhere in the vicinity. Yeah, we, we heard that, yeah. Uh, what, what's that plank out there with a piece of seaweed on it? Oh, no, it's not a piece of seaweed. That's somebody's hair. But somebody floating. Goodness me, he's naked. Oh, goodness, who is this? Oh, that's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Embarrassing for him. And he says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. 
You know, I live under the weight of my responsibility. Who's weak? Don't I feel weak? Who's led into sin? Don't I inwardly burn? You, you think that I'm some kind of a confident apostle traveling around? No, he says, I'm weak. You think I don't struggle with temptations led into sin? No, he says, who's led into sin? Don't I inwardly burn? And earlier to the first Corinthians, he'd written about burning as a metaphor for sexual desire. I'd rather marry than burn, etc. He says, now he says, don't you think I, I don't think I don't inwardly burn. Do you, don't, do you think I as a single man traveling the Mediterranean don't struggle with sexual temptations? I do, says Paul. And if I boast, I boast the things that show my weaknesses, my my. Uh, resume is not about the things that make me strong. My resume is about things that make me weak. For this reason, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong because it is Christ in weak me that produces the fruit. It's grace. It's Christ through us to the world. But we would have given up long, long before we got to even the second beating unless motivated by love. And so Jesus says to these disciples, or he says, says of him when he's here with the disciples, that he saw the crowds, had a vision of them, saw the people, as we talked last night, and he had compassion. And that compassion moved him and drove him. And without compassion, we may engage in Christian ministry and witness and evangelism, but only for a couple of hours when it's convenient. And we do our bit, but not as a life where we're open to God, putting us in touch with the right people at the right time, in the right way, at the right place, because we're moved by love and by compassion. What I'm saying to you this morning, I say to myself, deeply to myself. Sometimes people become a nuisance when you're in ministry, rather than seeing everybody as having that need that we can help to address in some way because we deal with them with compassion and with love. So vision must lead to compassion. 